Take your Bibles and let's go to John chapter 4. Dave did a great job with that man. We should all give him a hand. That was, that's a hard passage, but it's going to figure into our study today. That's why we chose it, okay? It wasn't just like a random thing to make Dave miserable. <clears throat> it does factor into the message. Uh, we're talking about the woman at the well. We're going to start right into the text. We're going to go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and um, then I'll introduce how we're going to do this study, and then we'll just get as far as we can get, and we'll quit. So that's where we're going. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll read. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, fill our vision. I just ask you, Lord, you know that there are just so many things that fill our lives. We're busy people. And Lord, it's good to be busy. I'm knocking that. Lord, sometimes the cares of this life and all the things about it can just so crowd our minds and our vision that we lose sight of you high and lifted up. Fill our vision today. Lord, draw us into your presence. Teach us. We come before your word. We, we, we just kneel before you. We ask your spirit to direct us. We need him. We need you, Spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go into the text. Now you will remember from a couple of weeks ago, we get to the end of chapter 3. We studied Nicodemus, which was a great interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. And then John the Baptist, we see his last testimony concerning Jesus. And we see the occasion of that in John chapter 3. It was because of the fact that Jesus was baptizing. Remember that right there in verse 22? His, his disciples go into the Jordan region. His disciples are baptizing. And they are now baptizing more followers than John was. And John's disciples are kind of like bent out of shape. And it's kind of like, you know, who is this Jesus guy? Kind of, you know, kind of kind of elbowing into our ministry. And John says, no, he must increase, I must decrease. But that all set the stage for what happens next. Because it tells us in verse 1, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although notice this, Jesus himself wasn't doing the baptizing, it was his disciples who were doing it. That doesn't mean they were doing it against his wishes. It just simply means they were doing it as his agents. So they were doing it as an agent of Jesus, just like we baptize in the name of Jesus. His early disciples are baptizing in the name of Jesus. Jesus himself is not baptizing, his followers are. And so because of this kind of brouhaha, it says he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. 
If you harmonize the Gospel accounts and you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find that this then is the time when Jesus goes back into Galilee. He has a heavy footprint ministry in the synagogues and a very public ministry of teaching and healing in this next phase. It really launches him into the public's eye. And so he is going back to Galilee to launch his public ministry. And then it tells us here, and by the way, this is an interaction that John gives us that is nowhere else in Scripture, is it? This is unique to the Gospel of John telling us of an occasion when Jesus meets with a woman at the well. And it says here, he had to pass through Samaria. Now just notice that real quick. It says he had to do it. It does not mean that that was the only freeway to get there. It does not mean it was the only trail to get from Judea to Galilee. No, most Jews would not go through Samaria. They would go, and we'll look at a map a little bit later, they would go to Jericho from Judea, they would go up the Jordan Valley, and then they would go back up the Yarmuk River, and they would enter into Galilee that way, so they would not be contaminated by these Samaritans. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. He was not constrained by geography, he was constrained by the Father's will and a driving purpose to meet a woman he knew would come there. That's why he had to go. Because he had an occasion to have a conversation. He had to go. And so it says here, he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. This is right near what today is the current city we call Nablus. Sometimes you'll see Nablus in the news. And so it's right in that region today where sometimes there's Palestinian conflict. It's the city of Sychar. It's just a little village. He comes to that village, and it is near the field that the patriarch Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Remember, Joseph was his preeminent son who also had been a prince in Egypt. But... He was his favored son. And so it is near to a field that had been given to Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. It's interesting in the book of Genesis, Jacob is not well known for digging wells. Who was? His dad, Isaac. But obviously, Isaac had taught his boy how to find water and how to dig a well. So Jacob digs a well in Sychar. It's still there today. There's a church that's built around it. It's a well-known site. It's probably one of the best attested sites that actually has the merit of saying, this is the spot. And so this is where Jesus comes. And it tells us Jesus got tired. He was weary from his journey he sits beside the well, and it's noon. It's the sixth hour. It's hot. It's dusty. 
And Jesus in his humanity is tired, and he sits there because he has an appointment. He has an appointment with a woman. And it's not very long until a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the village to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and then to boot, on top of that, a woman? So there's two things here that are kind of like cultural, social taboos. Jesus sitting at the well, here comes a Samaritan, he asks for water from the Samaritan, and it's also a woman that he asks to draw that water. And she is kind of in wonder and amazement, how do you do this, why do you do this? And then, of course, you see the phrase here, for the Jews have no association with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't have anything to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I don't get thirsty again and have to come here and get water. Jesus said to her, go get your husband. The woman said, I don't have one. Jesus said to her, Now, this reveals his omniscience. There's no way he can know this, and she knows it. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Wow. I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation began with the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. As we go through this text, we're going to look at the flow. There's the occasion of the conversation that begins in verse 1 to 3. Jesus needed to go to Galilee, and he has an appointment in Samaria at Sychar. 
We then see what we read, which is a conversation between Jesus and the woman. We didn't read this yet, but in verses 27 to 38, the disciples come back and they say to him, Hey, I know you're God, but why are you talking to that woman? Don't you know she's a Samaritan? Don't you think that, like, looks bad? Don't you think that sheds, you know, like an evil light on all of us? What are you doing? And Jesus says, well, wait, 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 let me tell you. Let me explain to you what I'm doing. And he gives them an explanation. And then we see the woman who said, I perceive you are a prophet, because Jesus knew exactly what was true in her life. And he got her to confess it, didn't he? That was confession. Because Jesus said, what you said is true. The guy you now have is not your husband. You've had five. I don't have a husband. Jesus was not being mean and nasty to her. He wasn't trying to point out all her failures and try to make her feel like a worm. He was getting her to say what? The truth about who she is. You know, for true worship to happen, it says we worship him in truth. There are two truths that are a part of true worship. One is the truth about me, alongside the truth about him. And so for true worship to happen for that Samaritan woman, Jesus says to her, go and get your husband. He's not trying to be mean. He wants her to speak truth. She then goes and gets everybody. And she says to them what? Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. You know what? He only told her one thing. He only put his finger on the, on the deal about the wives. But what did she know from that? This guy knows everything about me. He told me everything I ever did. In this one interaction, she knows that this man that she has met knows it all. That's where we're going. Now, as we go through this, we're going to talk about the Samaritans today. We're going to talk about who they are and why there is this hostility. But before we do that, I want to just lay a little bit of groundwork for what we're going to talk about as we go through the study. When we go through this study, we're not going to so much talk about the content of the conversation, although we will do that. What does it mean that Jesus is the living water? What does he mean when he says, you know, drink of me? What does all that mean? We'll talk about the content of the conversation. But what we're really going to talk about is this. Jesus' method. Jesus meets a woman he knows is hostile to his person and his message. And he interacts with her in a way that he wins her, he doesn't alienate her. How did that happen? This woman is hostile to everything that Jesus stands for. And yet she becomes the first major evangelist in the gospel record. How did she go from hostility and alienation to being his follower? What did Jesus do? I think this is very important for us. We live in a time in America 
when our presuppositions as Christians are no longer the mainstream, more and more people are hostile to, number one, our message, and because they are hostile to our message, they are also hostile towards us. How do you interact with that? Just start throwing mud at them? Just get in an argument? You know, we get in our own echo chambers so many times as Christians, and we speak our language, and we speak it loudly and obnoxiously, and we alienate people. Is that what God wants from us? No. Now, did Jesus speak the truth? Yes. But how did he do it? In love. And there is something about the manner of Jesus that wins this woman instead of alienating her. I've been having some conversation with a guy who is a med student in St. George. Um, And uh, conversation came around to some extended family that we know that we lease some land for on our ranch. And uh, we were talking on the phone the other night, and uh, he was telling me, I was just like, so, so tell me, you know, who are you? What are you? He said, I'm an agnostic. So I said, so, you know, why are you an agnostic? Is it because you just don't know what to believe, or are you an agnostic because you arose at that conviction by study? Why are you an agnostic? We're just having an open conversation. And the guy said to me, because most of what I see coming out of the church is hate. Because most of what I see in the culture from the church is hate. It's a message of hate. And so I'm like, what is this Christian thing? I don't want anything to do with it. That's why he's an agnostic. You know what? That gave us a great starting point. Gave us a great starting point. I'm hoping to build on it. Why? Because we can talk about this. What does that mean? How do you interact with that? I read this really intriguing article two weeks ago, written by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. I really like Kevin DeYoung's ministry. He's a guy, I don't even know where he pastors, but he writes for Gospel Coalition. I read his stuff all the time. Anyway, he wrote this book review of a biography of a man named Timothy Keller. Have you ever heard of Timothy Keller? Timothy Keller had a high-profile ministry in New York City where he ministers many times to people that we're talking about in this study who are hostile to the message of the gospel. And Timothy Keller has had amazing success at taking people with huge intellectual problems with the gospel and seeing them become Christians. It's just been his ministry. That's who the guy is. Anyway, so there's a book that's written about Timothy Keller. He's still with us, although he's had pancreatic cancer, and and he's got a really tough row to hoe right now in his life. He's an older man. In the book review, Kevin DeYoung shared the first time that he met Timothy Keller. He knew of Timothy Keller, but they had never met, and Timothy Keller knew of him because also Kevin DeYoung's ministry is kind of a whole high-profile ministry. And they were asked to sit on a kind of a panel doing a Q&A at a major Christian conference. They'd never met each other, and right before they get up on the panel, Kevin DeYoung walks up to Timothy Keller, and he put out his hand. He said, it is a pleasure to finally meet the nicest man 
in evangelicalism. And uh, Timothy Keller looked at him and said, it is the nicest thing to finally meet the meanest man in evangelicalism. <laughs> How would you like to have somebody say that to you? You know, here, you just put a nice compliment on him, the nicest guy. And he... Nice to meet the meanest guy. Wow. Kevin DeYoung came away from that. He did a lot of reflection. He talked about it in this book review that he wrote. Now, they became, they're great friends, and it wasn't like a slam on his person and his character, but it did cause Kevin DeYoung to reflect on something. And he asked this question in the article, and ever since then, it's really been stirring in my soul. Essentially, Kevin DeYoung asked of himself from that, Am I a wall maker or a bridge builder? Am I a wall maker or a bridge builder? That's a pretty good question. In the article, Kevin DeYoung said that both Timothy Keller and Kevin DeYoung together agreed that Kevin DeYoung's ministry is much more about walls and Timothy Keller's is much more about bridges. But they both agreed that both are essential to the health, the health of Christendom. Does the church need men in ministry who are great at erecting proper boundaries? That's been Kevin DeYoung's ministry. He's great on the truth. He's great on apologetics. He's great at articulating what is core to the truth and then saying, we got to draw some lines. He's a great boundary maker. But we also need bridge builders, don't we? We need them both. But it caused me to think, which am I? Am I a wall maker or a bridge builder? And how can I be better at both? Because that's what I want to be, right? I want to draw the right walls. I want to stand for the truth. But I want to do it by also building bridges. And here we see Jesus building bridges. Now, who was he building bridges with? Let's ask ourselves this question for a few minutes by thinking about the Samaritans. Who were they? What did they believe? And why is there so much hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans? To frame that discussion, Dave read the difficult passage that he read. I'm not going to have you turn there, and I didn't put it on the board. But I'm going to allude to some things. So if you want to look at it, you can go to 2 Kings 17 at this stage of the study. Who are the Samaritans? This is Israel. Somewhere in here is the northern reaches of what we call Judea. Now, this map does not go south and go all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba and show us the Negev, which is also part of Judah. So this is not all of Judah right here. It goes far south of that. But somewhere in here is the line... And then somewhere up in here is the line. 
And this area is what we're going to call Samaria. You'll see in big letters on this map is a place called Mount Gerizim. And Sychar is right there where Jesus is meeting the woman at the well. Now, when Jesus said he had to go through Samaria, what Jesus does is he takes the high road that goes through the hill country of Manasseh on his way home. Typically, what would happen is in order to keep from being contaminated by these people, a good Jew who had gone to Passover would have gone home by going to Jericho, down to the Jordan, up the Jordan Rift, and then back up the Yarmouk. And then right here he is in the plain of Esdralon. From here, Jesus' home is in Nazareth. Of course, over here is Capernaum and other places. So he could have kept going this way. But that's typically what they would do in order to avoid the contamination of the Samaritans. But as I said, Jesus takes the hill road, and he goes up through Sychar, and he returns that way. Now, why is this hostility even there? By the way, here's another picture. This is Mount Gerizim, and this is Mount Ebal, and this is Sychar, or Nablus today, and Jacob's well sits in here. In the book of Joshua, when the children of Israel go into the promised land, blessings are pronounced. Remember, God has all the people of Israel assembled here. And blessings are, are announced on Mount Gerizim and curses on Ebal. Now, you can see Ebal is like this dry, barren, south-facing slope. Gerizim has timber on it even today. And so Gerizim is more lush. It's blessing. Ebal is curses. And you can read in the book of Joshua all the blessings and curses and how they're related to Ebal and Gerizim. Now, Gerizim is the mountain on which the Samaritans worshipped. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Okay? But let's go back in our thinking to 2 Kings 17. Where do the Samaritans come from? How does this happen? To start with, if you start early enough in the history of Israel, the first king is who? Saul. And Saul gets the what? Mm. He was disobedient. David is his chosen man. David has a son named Solomon, who has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam is a dummy. Right? The elders of the land come to him and say, your dad taxed the people heavy. You build a temple. You know, all this stuff. Lay off the taxes and the people will love you. The old men told him. The advisors told him to do that. The young guy said what? We're all socialists now. Increase the taxes. Right? I mean, that's what they said. Increase the taxes. Make it a heavier burden on them. Rehoboam listened to the young guys, and what happened? He got the worst church split in history. Because all of a sudden, you got two kingdoms. You got Judah and what is called Samaria. Why was it called Samaria? Because they set up their capital in a city called Samaria. This, then, is where we get the ten tribes of Israel. The ten tribes. 
those people never obeyed God. What they end up doing is Jeroboam in a place called Bethel, and then also up in Dan, builds a high place to Yahweh. And he says to the people of Israel, the ten tribes, don't bother going to Jerusalem to do the Passover. Don't bother going to Jerusalem to do your sacrifices. Why did he do that? Well, he knew if they went there, it wouldn't be very long, and they'd have his head, and they would reunite as a country. He says, so we're just going to do our sacrifices in Bethel and Dan. And he institutes idolatry on a national scale. In the year 722, the Assyrian Empire comes down to invade Egypt. They come on the king's highway with their armor, and not their armor, their army, on, the, on this plain, the coastal plain, and they go to Egypt. And while they do, they stop and they invade, and God uses them to wipe out the ten tribes. And that kingdom is done. Now, this kingdom of Judah continues until 586 when Babylon takes them out. But in 722, the Assyrians take them out, the ten. Here was the Assyrians' method of conquest. When they came in, if you were a Jew and they conquered you, you said goodbye to home and you went somewhere else. And they scattered the Jews everywhere else in their empire. That's why we say something about the ten lost tribes. They were dispersed. And what they did is exactly what we read in Second Kings. They brought people from everywhere else in the empire and they settled them in Samaria. So all of a sudden, you have all these people from other nationalities living right here. Those people become a thorn in the flesh to Ezra and Nehemiah. You read about them in those two books when they're building the walls in the temple. But they settle here. Now, what happened in the text that we read? They came in there, and they just build their own temples, and they do their own sacrifice. So what did God send among them? What was in the text? They got ate up by lions. Isn't that interesting? They got ate up by lions. So they send back to the king of Assyria, and they say, we're getting eaten by lions. It's because we don't know what to do here. The gods are mad at us. So what did the Assyrian Empire do? Do you remember that? They said, go find some priests and have them teach what God requires. But who did they get the priests from? Was it from the line of Aaron? It says in the text it was from anybody they chose. And they were priests who also had been involved in the idolatry that got, got God mad at them in the first place. They were, they were idolatrous apostate priests who teach error and only perpetuate the trouble of those Samaritans. So, having said that, time goes on. This is 700 years before Jesus meets this woman at the well. That's a long time, right? That's a long time. 
There's a lot of water under this bridge by the time Jesus meets them. So what's going on when Jesus meets them? Okay, first of all, here's the Samaritans of Jesus' day. They also were a monotheistic faith. They believed in Yahweh. Remember it said there in 2 Kings, they feared God. They believe in Yahweh. They were also a revealed religion who believe in the Torah. They have, even to this day, Samaritans, there are Samaritans, the Samaritans celebrate the Passover. They do so according to their own calendar, but they celebrate the Passover. But they had a disputed heritage in holy sites, and the Jews regard them as a worship of idolatry, which they were. Causes me to ask, so who are the Samaritans today? I mean, just, no, in America, in what that, that church deals with. And what I mean by that is this. There are people out there who will name the name of Jesus, who will use the same book, and they will put totally different definitions to everything we say. Won't they? Jesus is having a conversation with a woman who would say she believes in Jehovah God. Who would say, I sacrifice the Passover. Who does all this stuff, but she does it at a place called Mount Gerizim, which is very important to them. Now, what created the hostility? Why were the Jews and the Samaritans hostile to one another? Here's why. Um, uh, let's see. I didn't put this on the screen. Here's why. Here's what happened historically. The Samaritans are an independent kingdom, and the Jews are an independent kingdom, but they're ruled and reigned on by a guy or by the Greeks. Alexander the Great came, took over the whole region. There was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, remember hearing him, who does the abomination of desolation in the temple of the Jews. All that's going on. It's the intertestamental period. There is a group of Jews called the Maccabeans. Have you ever heard of them guys? And then from them come a group of rulers called the Hasmoneans. One of the rulers of the Hasmoneans was a guy named John Hyrcanus. John Hyrcanus was a priest, and he rules. On Mount Gerizim, this mountain that I showed you, right on the top of it, the Samaritans have a temple very similar to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Very similar. The Jews under Hyrcanus in the year 150, after taking over Palestine again from the Greeks, march on Gerizim and destroy that temple. They say it is idolatry and it is wrong, and they knock it to the ground. It didn't go over well. Right? The Jews were invaders, and the Samaritans did not appreciate it. And from 150, when Hyrcanus did that, until Jesus talks to this woman at the well, the Jews and the Samaritans do not associate. They hate each other. 
They have very similar religions. But Jesus obviously is going to say that the religion of the Samaritans is wrong. He says they don't worship. They, they worship what they don't even know. They worship what they don't even know. We know what we worship. Very similar faith, very similar terms, but a very deep animosity. Think north and south. Mason-Dixon line stuff. Hostility. Inbred, generational, and now Jesus is going to go through that town. He's going to sit with this woman at the, at the well in Samaria, and he's going to say to you, I am the Messiah. Believe in me. He's going to talk to her about worship, isn't he? He's going to talk to her about true worship. True worship is predicated on what two things? Spirit and truth. He's going to tell this woman. Spirit and truth. You know what true worship is? Spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about my spirit, my disposition. It's what David talks about in Psalm 51 when he, when he says to God, you didn't require a sacrifice from me or I'd have brought it. I sinned. But he said the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a contrite spirit. That's sincerity of heart. True worship involves sincerity of heart. It also involves what? Truth. Truth about God. You get off on either one of those rails, and it ain't true worship. You can have all the truth in the world about who Jesus is, what the Bible says, and if your heart is not in it, God says it's an abomination to him. And you can be sincere as the day is long. And you can really believe in whatever you believe in. You can be sincere. But if your sincerity is not married to truth, it is not true worship. It takes both. True worship is this. When the head, truth, and the heart, spirit, are in the same place. True worship happens when the head and the heart meet God. It doesn't mean when just your head meets God or just your heart meets God. It takes both the head and the heart. And this is what Jesus talks about in all this conversation with this woman. And we're going to look at all these things, and I'm going to close now. There again, this is not going to be a study on the content. This is going to be about method. You know, how do you win a person who is hostile to who you are, and to what you're going to say. Here's some things we're going to learn from Jesus. Number one, how did he start? He started by asking her to help him. Think about that for just a minute. Jesus is going to help her, but where does he start? Would you give me a drink? Second thing, he starts at their common context. They're both at a well. Thirdly, we're going to see that he didn't begin a diatribe against all the intricacies of her faith. How many of you got a bookshelf of books about all the errors in other faiths, right? And we know all of those things, and then we meet somebody who believes that stuff, and man, out come the guns. I mean, we're going to let them have it, right? You ever been there, done that one? Did you win anybody to Jesus by getting into an argument? Never. It doesn't work. 
Jesus does not go into a diatribe against the intricacies of what she believes. He just simply deals with her deepest need, what she knows. Uh, And so we'll talk about he drew out her personal emptiness, and then he offered her ultimate solutions, not just a superficial, superficial fix. He says, I am he. Believe in me. Worship. He doesn't give her a bunch of marriage counseling. Tell her how to make it right. No, he goes to the core of what her need is. And because she gets the core right, you know what happens? She gets everything else right later. Because if he fixes you in the heart, everything flows from that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Let's, we'll pick up next week. We'll just kind of jump into the conversation, and we'll look at some of these ways that Jesus ministers to this woman so that hopefully, Lord willing, the next time you're on an airplane and you're going to have a conversation with a Buddhist, you don't just let them have it. Okay? That ain't the goal. It's to win somebody. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the way, the truth, the life, and that through you we come to the Father. I pray that you give us wisdom in these days in which we live that are just full of hostility and rage against the truth. You would help us, your people, not to get defensive, not to get kind of a martyred complex. Lord, to just lovingly extend grace and care. So we pray in Jesus' name.